Middle East Report with James Dorsey on Sabahul Muslim. Just a little shy past uh, 20 to 8. Uh, you're listening to Sabah al-Muslim. It is right here from our studios in Durban this time for the next uh, day or so, I would say. Uh, keeping you company till 9 a.m. Uh, this morning, inshallah. Well, uh, joining me for the Middle East Report this morning as regular and, or, and as always, uh, James Dorsey, who's an award-winning scholar and journalist with uh, a different perspective on the Middle East and a senior fellow at the SRA. Rajaratnam School of International Studies uh, in Singapore. Of course, you can uh, join James at uh, the World of, uh, uh, or you can find out what he's up to at the World of uh, uh, Middle East, or tur- the turbulent world, Middle East soccer. I'll give that uh, announcement just a little bit. How you can follow James's good works that he's taking place or he's doing, uh, you know, on the on the subject, on the matter itself. Uh, good uh, day to you, James. Pleasure to be with you. Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, James, as we head into the month of Ramadan, is obviously not the Muslim world that's looking at the arrival of that month with interest, but Israel, uh, you know, um, looking at that month and noting very well that, uh, you know, either you want to downscale in Gaza, you want to de-escalate if that is even possible at this stage, at this time. But what's certainly going to be a flashpoint of discussion locally and internationally is the issue of Al-Aqsa. Now, uh, for the part of Israel, they would like to see that... Ramadan goes by and there's no further, uh, you know, damage to their reputation, more further attention in the area. But uh, Al-Aqsa is no doubt going to feature in the Ramadan that's going to start in the next, uh, well, few days' time. Your thoughts on that? Well, it's certainly a flashpoint in discussion. The question is whether this year, when Ramadan starts around March 10, whether it's going to become a flashpoint on the ground. And the indications are that it will, uh, both because of Hamas as well as because of the far-right elements in um, Benjamin Netanyahu's Israeli cabinet. Uh, Hamas has called for major demonstrations, um, and obviously uh, Ramadan is a time when a lot of uh, the faithful, certainly those in Palestine, mitigate towards the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And at the same time, the far right wants to even further restrict uh, the the number of people and those who can access the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So among other things right now, uh, what the Israelis try to, to bar from the mosque are younger men. The far right is now talking about uh, an age limit that would be only... 60 and above and so uh, the expectation is that um, um, that this will lead to clashes on the uh, or around the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the Haram al-Sharif and that of course given the Gaza war is going to further heighten emotions uh, you know the same topic um 
uh, James, uh, I, I read about a few hours ago that uh, the the Knesset decided to remove some of the powers given to well Ben Gavir in, in particular. Uh, I'm sure exactly you know what, what that meant, or if you were but all fair with the fact regarding uh, the the issue of Al Aqsa and him not being able to uh, control or manage the security issues of the of, of the compound itself. Are, are you aware of any things such related, uh, James? Well, I, I think there's certainly on the part of Netanyahu a an effort to restrain or to to delimit the powers of the far right. Uh, I mean that that links into the the larger picture, if you wish, that Netanyahu is uh, uh, in many ways caught in a catch twenty two, and part of that catch twenty two is the fact that the uh, far right can determine whether or not his government has a future, which also obviously impacts uh, uh, the ceasefire negotiations. And whereas um, Netanyahu wants to keep the focus on uh, on Gaza, uh, the Israeli far right, and people like Ben-Gvir, but also Bezalel Shmotovich, the um, finance minister, uh, are uh, much more broadly focused at this point in terms of re- uh, restricting uh, things like access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, moving on, of course, staying to in, in, in that part of the world, uh, pressure, of course, mounting on Israel and, of course, on Hamas as well to agree to a ceasefire. Now, this was the la, uh, agreement, or should I say the discussions of the last few days ago uh, in, in Paris that were somehow, in principle, Israel agreeing to a, a ceasefire or a truce during the course of the month of Ramadan in exchange for a number of hostages. What's the latest coming out on the ceasefire? Ceasefire talks. Well, in fact, I think that the Al-Aqsa Mosque issue is closely linked to that. Uh, so, Israel, you have these negotiations, and they've moved on since Paris. Uh, they're actually now in Doha um, with another round of negotiations. And par- I think part of Hamas's calculation is certainly after what happened last yesterday with the death of more than, or the killing of more than 100, uh, 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 100 Palestinians who were seeking aid, that Hamas sees uh, heightened tensions around the Al-Aqsa Mosque as one more uh, element in pressuring Israel into a ceasefire. The problem with the ceasefire negotiations is, and Israel's position has been somewhat weakened by what happened yesterday, uh, but the the fundamental problem is that what's the objective? So Israel is wants indeed some degree of quiet over Ramadan uh, needs to be seen to uh, getting Hamas held hostages freed uh, and therefore uh, but does not want to surrender its uh, goal of continuing the war once uh, once this ceasefire comes to an end, whereas Hamas is also is under pressure on the one hand to alleviate uh, the pressure on the Palestinian population in Gaza to alleviate the humanitarian situation. But on the other hand, 
does not want a temporary ceasefire. It wants to leverage this into a, um, a permanent ceasefire, an end of the war, uh, withdrawal of Israeli troops, and so forth. And that's, I think, where the, <clears throat> where the pressure, uh, or where, the, where the, uh, the, the bottleneck is. Now, in that bottleneck, Israel's position has been somewhat weakened by what happened yesterday, which increases, you know, just and, and highlights the the urgency of of, of a uh, a ceasefire and the flow of humanitarian aid. So I think that this may not all happen by the by Monday or by the tenth of of March, and uh, what. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden had hoped for, but ultimately, I think we will see some sort of, at least, temporary truce. Hmm. Uh, moving on, of course, to the role of Hamas, the police force. Now, we've seen Hamas's police force in Gaza uh, not not probably as active as they were, obviously, but still maintaining some form of uh, law and order in the lines itself, giving an indication that Hamas is not uh, entirely eradicated. In fact, many may say far from it. Uh, it may its military capabilities may have been, uh, if you want to call that military capabilities. Uh, giving it that title may have been blunted or, or, or dented or even practically destroyed, but as a functional organization that maintains law and order and even as a multinational uh, movement in Lebanon, maybe in Jordan as well, other parts of the world, it's still a, a functioning, uh, you know, a, 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 a fun- I won't say a community, but still a functioning uh, element of the, of the, of the Palestinian uh, resistance. Indeed. Well, I think there are two things that are playing here. One is the fact that, uh, particularly in northern Gaza, um, Hamas has continuously reasserted itself uh, as soon as Israeli troops withdrew from a certain area. And reasserting it itself meant that it reemphasized its position as a uh, as a governing authority, and it did so partly uh, through trying to establish law, law and order uh, in those areas. Now, what happened yesterday, with other words, uh, the the death of more than 100 uh, Palestinians and, and and hundreds wounded uh, in as they st- uh, tried to uh, basically storm uh, aid trucks entering Gaza. Is, is an aspect of that. And there may very well be truth to the Israeli version of events. In other words, that initially there was a stampede and people died in that stampede. It you know, makes perfect sense. Uh, but then the Israelis opened fire because they felt that uh, their, own, their own people in positions were, were, were being threatened. But what that, what that tells you is that there is a need for, that there is lawlessness in Gaza at the moment and that there is a need for uh, a force that brings in some law and order in order to uh, allow the flow of uh, humanitarian aid. And in fact, the Americans have been telling the Israelis that they should halt their attacks on the Hamas police force as part of the the overall assault on Hamas, because those are the forces that can maintain some law and order. 
Moving on to matters coming out of Saudi Arabia, James. Saudi Arabia executing seven people, the highest mass execution since the kingdom executed 81 people in one batch. In This was back in 2022. Now, of course, uh, you know, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, has, has attempted to put on uh, a spin on Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, no secret that we want to modernize the system and this and that and whatnot. But Saudi executions and, well, one may say that if uh, a country executes another country for uh, another individual for for murder, molestation, etc., there there may be some you know room for that, and many countries in the East and the West, for that matter, still maintain uh, the laws of execution. But Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, uh, nefarious for executing people for what they call dissent, uh, not towing the line, anti-administration, uh, and and that's that's quite often very likely. In the case of Saudi Arabia, although they don't really disclose full details of why the individual has, in fact, been executed. What are we to make of this latest uh, execution in Saudi Arabia? Well, I think there's several issues here. One is, of course, the issue that you raised, whether or not one is in favor of a death penalty or not. But leaving that aside, uh, Saudi Arabia has one. Mohammed bin Salman has socially liberalized because he uh, that meets the requirements uh, of um, economic diversification, particularly with including women more more wholly into the uh, uh, into the economic process, and also because he needs to cater to aspirations, youth aspirations. But Mohammed bin Salman's rule is also one of the harshest rules that uh, Saudi Arabia has known since it was founded in 1932. And its definitions of what constitutes a uh, a capital crime are very far-reaching. Keep in mind that, for example, uh, atheism, whatever one thinks of, you know, of atheism, is defined as terrorism in Saudi law, which is extreme. What we've seen with these executions, uh, these most recent executions of seven people, it's not quite clear who all of those seven are, but one one other aspect of, um, of the whole death penalty policy, if you wish, is that Saudi MBS is breaking his own rules, in a sense. So what you've seen is that kids, 14, 15, who were involved in a demonstration or may have been involved in a demonstration are imprisoned. Uh, they're held in prison until they're 18 or, or, or past 18, and then they're executed for a crime that they, uh, or alleged crime that they are, are said to have committed when they were uh, under age, even though MBS's rules or the rules that he's introduced are that uh, crimes or, or trespassings committed by uh, uh, by teenagers under the age of 18 are not uh, going to be penalized with, with, with death. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, of course, that you've seen a number of incidents recently. Um, so, for example, you just had 10... Uh, football fans arrested because they were chanting Shiite, religious Shiite slogans 
uh, in, during a, a soccer match, uh, and that was de uh, declared as um, sectarian, which really undermines the whole projection of Saudi Arabia as becoming more religiously tolerant and pluralistic. James Dorsey, thank you for your time this uh, morning here for us and uh, daytime there for you. And been a pleasure talking to you, James. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, chat again soon, may maybe next week this time. And have a good one ahead of you, James. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. And I look forward to our next chat.